been all snowed and I've slept upon crowed and I've camped by the waiting stones as well. I've sunbed on kinder, been turned to a cinder, and many more things I can tell. My rucksack has off been me pillow, the heather has off been me bed, and sooner than part from the mountain, I think I would rather be dead. I'm a rambler, I'm a rambler, a Manchester way. I get all my pleasure the hard moorland way. I may be a wage slave on Monday, but I am a free man on Sunday. Ah, I'm doing a rare weekend, rare mid-afternoon show, early afternoon show, because one, I'm going to be gone next week, no streams. Two, I wanted to get a look at the backyard during the day so you could see some of the cool snow because it's cool and the snow is cool and I like snow and I'm glad that it snowed because I kind of had given up on ever seeing a nice snowstorm again in the northeast. Got all that guy there? Delightful. Oh boy. Oh boy. People are going to start puking. There we go. Uh, and it's the good stuff. It's the good packy stuff. The stuff you want. Uh, not the wet shit that you can't do anything with. This is good packing snow. Good uh, man and ball snow. Uh, I'm trying to reset this fucking thing. Begging your pardon. I think the, I think my shit is broken here, so it might fall at any moment. Oh no! It snowed in Wisconsin. It snowed over Thanksgiving, didn't it? I mean, I guess this is the first winter snow, but like it has already snowed in Wisconsin. I know that for a fact. <laughs> oh, it might. Boris, cancel bloody Christmas, mate. It's a load of bollocks. They did it, mate. They cancelled bloody Christmas. I got good to be able to eat me bollocks pie with me gran. Those freaks take Christmas seriously. They invented most of the shit. I mean, so did the Germans, but they're all Germans, basically. Fucking Germans invented Christmas one way or the other, whether you're talking about the Central European traditions that created the concepts of, like, the, the uh, Father Christmas, St. Nicholas, and... Uh, and uh, gift giving and the tree, uh, which of course is a descendant of like pagan uh, traditions of, of, of forest worship. And then the Anglos, just fucking uh, emigrant Germans, created the 19th century Victorian Christmas that we was then codified by Coca-Cola. It's all kraut shit, all the way down. Christmas is kraut shit. It has nothing to do with uh, Jesus or uh, the nativity or or anything that happened in uh, the fucking Middle East. It's all about, it's all about fucking square-headed krauts huddling for warmth uh, in a fucking snow-banked December. Ah, but they love that shit up there. And now they're not going to get Christmas because they've created a new tier. There's tier four. If you're in tier four, Christmas is canceled. Those people love it. They love acting like Blade Runner. Fucking going, there are three tiers. You are now divided into three tiers. Your tier is not your destiny. You can escape your tier at any time by compliance. They love it. They hate their freedom. And they want it to be taken away. But not through like a collaborative process, but through a violent domination, because they're a bunch of sickos. What I think is most interesting, though, is that it's the conservative government that's doing the lockdowns. And and, and, and you can't really, you don't have like the, the, the federalist mishmash to give people like confusion about who to blame about a lot of these directives. Um, because like, 
all those people were pissed at Democratic governors for enforcing lockdowns and stuff. Most of the time, it was not them doing it, but they were the nearest Democrat they could blame. They have, like, you know, a parliamentary government without dumb federalism in, in, in Britain, and they have a conservative government, and they're the ones doing it. They're literally canceling Christmas. And I know that England has all of our dumb culture war stuff, even if it's not quite as uh, armed as ours. Like, I know there's a hilarious deal where people are trying to put the Magna Carta in their fucking shop windows to keep them from being closed, which is just chef's kiss. Just the, the way that our idiocy, like, like Britain exploded in the early modern era, and, like, the dumbest parts of it flew across the water to, to become our base morons, and now the idiocy became so dominant it's bouncing back on them. Like any, I mean, don't you know enough? Our, our British, I, I thought the British were still educated enough to know that the Magna Carta was just about giving the barons liberties over their fucking subjects. That 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 is a, that Britain is a fucking literal class society. But anyway, like they have our kind of culture war, anti-mask, anti-lockdown sentiment. But where does it go politically? Where is it going? I don't know. I mean, there's less of it to channel because people are less psycho there, but uh, it's got to go somewhere. Are they actually doing Brexit at the end of the year? Did they kick the fucking can down the road again? Because if they got another extension, then it's never going to happen, and it'll just be this forever, which is the perfect metaphor. The perfect metaphor. You have this thing, the concept of Brexit, that would represent a genuine break with the current, like, European uh, trade order. And, like, the state system, honestly, if you talk about Ireland. Uh, and that's essentially something the system cannot absorb at the moment. So it can't happen. But you can't just cancel it, because that would obviate the fiction of democratic participation by these subject governments. So you just kick the can down the road eternally. I think that's honestly more likely than them ever hitting a hard deadline, is them just never, just always kicking it down the road. And Someone joked once that in 50 years there will be a weird ritual that nobody understands the purpose from, where a guy in a powdered wig has to take the, ch the fucking channel over to France and then like walk like a road to Canosa thing to, uh, to Brussels with a parchment and then give it to a liveried guard in front of the uh, uh, e uh, EU parliament. And nobody even knows why he's doing it, but it's like a ritualized extension of the deadline. I don't think it's like the debt. The debt is, the debt is literally not real. The debt's not real. But like the 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 uh, the political crisis, the the legitimacy crisis at the heart of European governance is very real, and Brexit is a reflection of it. And the question. Like that, that that matters to policymakers is how much does that get channeled into political uh, power that can no longer be contained by the rickety structures of the European Union? That's a real question, and they don't want to get an answer because it might be the wrong one. And one way to postpone that reckoning is by postponing Brexit indefinitely. All the countries on earth but two are debtors. Who do they owe the money to? It's like Brunei and the Vatican are the only countries on earth that aren't in debt. Who the fuck are they in debt to? Aliens? It's not real. In the sense that it is not real the way that your personal debt is. As if you can be, like, beggared by it. Because... You're only being beggared by your debt because it's also, it's a, it's a instrument of coercion. It is a fiction designed to get compliance. What that means is there's never going to be some reckoning point. Whereas Brexit, the definition of that vote was at some point in the future we're leaving the EU... So that has a actual timeline to it, as opposed to the debt shit where they just point at the number and like frantically just gesture and say, it's so big. Like that meme of the, the porn star going, looking at the national debt clock. 
And you're just supposed to infer that that's supposed to mean something. It's supposed to have brought the end of the world for the last 30 fucking years. And every single time we have ever gotten close to paying off debt or balancing our budget, the politics instantly turn away from surplus to getting rid of it as quickly as possible. Bill Clinton actually balanced the fucking budget, which now seems like an impossibility and essentially is, and honestly shouldn't be done. He shouldn't have done that. It was bad he did, but he did it. And as soon as Bush got in there, the Republican, the party of fiscal responsibility, the party that was always yelling, how do you have to, how do you pay for it? There's no free lunch, immediately set about getting rid of that budget surplus. So that's not real. And yeah, one of the fucking financial panics that rocked the 19th century, I believe it was a, uh, uh, happened when we paid off the, the national debt. So that thing is like a fiction. But fucking Brexit is, it's the knock on the door for the European project. Now, maybe you can keep these fucking goons satisfied with uh, Christmas hams and, and Champions League soccer, but at some point, you have to worry... Can this be contained? Because there are, because it isn't a fully, uh, like, subordinated um, political unit like the United States, because these are our separate countries that were never really integrated at the political level. That was always supposed to come later in the EU. The EU, talk about kicking the can down the road, everything that the EU is built on was predicated on a political, uh, a, a, a tightening of political ties that has not happened, and that in the absence of would render any long-term crisis unmanageable, which is what we have seen in Britain since 2008, basically. Yeah, they're not going to be outmaneuvered by Boris Johnson, which is why they'll just keep them in the EU by prolonging it forever. They don't want him to leave. And these dumbasses don't really have any incentive in seeing Brexit completed either. Because it would be bad. I guess I assume, I don't know. Maybe they're making it up. I have no idea. Like I said, it, I've said before, the whole question of like how catastrophic Brexit would be to like uh, standard of living in Britain was always the big, the, the big, uh, the cudgel to oppose uh, Brexit. But I don't know how real it is. It's, it's not made up completely, but how significant, I have no idea. No, you've not left. you said that a million times. Shut the fuck up. You have not left. You're not out of the EU. Shut up. I watched... Somebody's asking about Michael Caine and Stalin. I actually watched that when I was a kid. Because I was cool. There was a big... I think it was TNT or it might have been one of the networks. Multi-night series about... Uh, like the uh, the big three and the and the uh, all the conferences, you know, like uh, uh, Tehran to Potsdam or something, and uh, John Lithgow played FDR, which great casting, perfect long uh, motherfucking ectomorph, uh, blue blood pilgrim ass motherfucker, uh, and. Uh, Bob Hoskins played Churchill, which is pretty funny, considering that Churchill was a literal lord, the descendant of Marlborough, like a high, the highest of uh, of 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 blue of bluest of bloods, and Bob Hoskins was just a pudgy little fucking uh, Cockney guy, which is kind of cool. Uh, and then fucking Michael Caine played Stalin with a half-ass Russian accent. It was fun. Yes, Churchill was half American. His mom was American. All right, thank you. Someone says I'm blonde. I, I know this is very indulgent and like kind of e-girly, but it has been kind of weird to me to notice since I've become a public person that, that people have very different ideas about what color my hair is, and I think that's weird. I feel like usually most people, they get exposed enough, you see the picture, you see a video of them, or you meet them enough, you get an idea of what their hair color is, because, but I've realized that my hair is like a perfect 
embodiment of like the main European hair types. Like there's three main European hair types. <coughs> and it's essentially blonde, red, and then the mixture of the two brown. And so, you know, since there are three types of hair, blonde, red, brown, what type is this? And I think the reason that's an interesting question, not just solipsistic, is, is that no matter what way you slice it, right? Like this is, if it's blonde, it's very dark blonde, strawberry blonde. If it's red, it's very like rust colored. It's not bright red. But I have seen drawings of me on the internet with like bright, bright white, like yellow hair and also just fucking pepper and pippy long stocking red hair. And I think that's because you might see it as darker light or like, but as long, as soon as in your head you turn it into one of those, if you turn it, you take it from, you know, the reality of this uh, muddled red-ish brown or blonde-ish brown or whatever-ish, you turn it into like the most vivid version of what that word means. It's like a, it's like your brain is, you're, you're playing telephone with reality. That's the, that's the trans, like that's the, that's like your mental translation of, of ideas. Yeah, like I had a, somebody made a groiper of me and it had like bright red hair. But I've seen ones where it's blonde. And so I thought the best way to, to get an answer to here is I put it on Twitter. I said, if you know, if you think you can answer this question, what color is my hair? And the lowest was red. It was only like 22. Then it was like 27 for blonde. And it was 50%, almost, I think even over 50, like 51% brown, the combination of the two. And I would say that since none of these are real categories, they don't represent real characters, it is all subjective inherently, then that is the objective answer to the question. No matter what I think, and I thought I was blonde my whole life. Part of that is because I was born like white-haired. And when, until I was like six or seven, I had, you know, the, the uh, I had that uh, like village of the damned, white blonde creepy blonde hair like the kind of kid you're like you like i had the white blonde hair and then it started darkening but i had i was still like a blonde blonde until i was you know in my teenagers and then after puberty it got darker and darker which is a very common thing so but it never got to the point where i felt it had left blonde but then red came out of nowhere as soon as other people like started coming together and trying to say what my color hair color my hair was Yes, I had Draco Malfoy hair. I don't, I don't watch that shit, but yes, that was my hair color. So I just think that's interesting. And, uh, and I think by getting that number, by doing the machine learning, we can get at something that's objectively the answer. It's brown. No matter what I think, no matter what you think, it's brown. Because you asked, what was, it's like 12,000 people. Yes, 12,000 people, and more than 6,000 of them say brown, it's brown. That's just the answer. Italians aren't really European, come on. I guess I'm talking about, like, the three Nordic hair colors, like, above the, above the Alps. The Hanseatic League colors. Yeah, there we go. But it was just weird to hear, see people call me a redhead. Because that always felt very, that always felt like its own thing. Like its own kind of identity that I never had, that I was, I never had any uh, connection to. And so it's been kind of weird. Yes, it's very, it's very angelic now. It's like getting shot through. And that's the other thing. If like the sun is on it, it looks pretty blonde no matter what. Like, it looks blonde. And, like, if you see it under bright lights, it looks pretty blonde. But, you know, that's not, that's not anything. That's just, that's just subjectivity. You got to get, like, a, enough people together, and then the sum total of their responses is the actual answer.
commodity fetishism. Someone wants to know about commodity fetishism. It's very misunderstood because the word fetish throws people. And they think that it stands for like materialism and being materialistic and caring about uh, commodities and wanting to fuck them. No. Uh, it is imbuing commodities with the properties of the labor that went into them. And that is how we create uh, the, the fantasy of the value form. And, and where, where we, 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 we give a value, a monetary value to commodities that imbues on the things themselves what is real, in reality the value of the labor that went into them. And that is what allows for, that fetish is what allows for us to, uh, to suborn labor and, and suborn surplus labor under capitalism and, and then essentially pay people less than they produced to buy less than they produced. Yeah, like a voodoo doll sense. Like they've, they've imbued, the, like a fetish, a fetish object in, in, uh, in like traditional religion is a, is a statue or a thing or some sort of made, made object that has a spiritual imbuement to the people who, who uh, like made it or, or carry it. And that in, in Marx, that process of, of enchanting an object is what we do in creating commodities. Because in, in, a, in a tribal community, that fetish, like the God that that fetish represents is the God of, of, the, of, the, of the people. And, and, and they represent essentially the social power of that group. And our social power is extracted off to the commodities that we create. And that means, and that's one of the, I mean, and the commodity fetishism, it, 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 it translates into culture in the way that we imbue cultural products with, uh, with social meaning. Yeah, that's the, that's like that's the abstract stuff. That's the stuff that that's the reason it's hard to re to just read capital. And a lot of people need help. I know I've used needed help because because uh, it uh, uh, that stuff it it doesn't like it's very hard to relate to specifics because it is it's it's the meta it's essentially the closest thing that Marxism has to like metaphysics because you're talking about the alienation away from a social production, a model where people are producing for a social group to one where uh, labor is abstracted, alienated, and, and a surplus is uh, acquired and then taken. And there has to be, and, and you know, Marx doesn't phrase it in spiritual terms, but it is a spiritual process. And so it's the most abstract and hardest to sort of describe to people because anything that is that touches and brushes the ineffable is hard to describe harder to describe than other things. Yeah, alienation. Now that's an important one and it's very intuitive and you can point to examples all over the place. Uh like, for example, that uh, if you're giving a massage to a loved one, there's an oxytocin release, like a, there's, a, there's a serotonin, whatever, the, the good brain chemical release uh, that is similar to that that is felt by the person getting the massage. But if you're being paid to give someone a massage, that chemical experience doesn't happen. That's a literal, measurable, physical alienation that occurs due to the alienation of labor. And you can extrapolate that, that response, that, that physicality, that, that physical, the reality, of, that physical impact of, of the wage relationship and capitalism broadly ac across every segment of social interaction and, and, and personal 
uh, identity formation. Vote face? Are you guys talking about uh, Felix's vote face? I could never do that. I give Felix credit. Uh, I might, I'm, I'm the best, I would say I'm the best Chapo at soy facing. Will is pretty good too, but only one of us is on the front page of the Google image search response to soy face, and that's me. Uh, but Felix gets credit for inventing, essentially taking a type of face and defining it in its most monstrous and disgusting way. Felix is definitely a shaman. Felix is, uh, if, 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 yeah. Felix is someone who got plugged into the internet at the exact right moment to be able to ride its consciousness, essentially. He is, he is kind of a Paul Atreides figure. Like, he emerged onto the, the blasted sands of the internet 1.0 world at, as a naif. Like, I was too old. I, I, I encountered that shit when I was already fully formed, or at least close to it, or at least fully traumatized into what would pass for adulthood. Felix was still, still a young pup, uh, and he was able to, to march uh, out into the dunes of, of Internet Arrakis and, and uh, fucking ride the sandworm. And now he sees, uh, he sees all times through the lens of, uh, of posting. Felix is on there too. Is he on the first page though? I'm on the I'm in the first line. I'm on the top line. Okay. I mean, my God, uh, just off the top, I had the hot couch thing. Like he took an, an experience that everyone had had among a certain demographic slice, and articulated it in a way that created like a spontaneous collective Proustian reverie for thousands of people who encountered it in the instant that they did. That's pretty impressive. And that's his gift. And it's, it's, it's amazing. I think it's because I came to it later. Uh, I saw it from more remove, and I'm, 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 there's too many layers of abstraction between me and the zeitgeist to do anything other than sort of comment on it uh, retrospectively, rather than bring things into being. Felix might be an all-time observational comic. You know, that's funny. It's weird to put it that way because that is kind of what he is. It's just that instead of doing the Seinfeld thing where you just say the thing, you uh, articulate the experience of encountering the thing, which is much deeper. What is the origin of Soyface? Well, Soyface comes, like most uh, of the good memes, from the alt-right. That is the one complaint they have that is fully uh, accurate. They got ripped off. Everybody stole their shit. And at the time, I always felt kind of weird about it. Like, yeah, no, it is kind of funny that we keep embracing these, these groiper memes from these people who we otherwise think are absolutely, you know, socially... Uh, doomed losers whose bitterness has overwhelmed their entire uh, humanity. But now the way I think, when I think now about, like, when I think now of the online overeducated post-collapse you know, precariat that is like the, the brain of the internet as one thing rather than as discrete objects. When I think of it as a holistic, you know, kind of a consciousness within the greater collective consciousness, then those are, uh, those are the ones who saw most clearly at the time 
the horrors of the uh, liberal order because they were the most ideologically alienated from it. Because politics as we understood it didn't really exist. I mean, Obama was sort of supposed to be the abolition of politics and the replacement of them with, uh, with validation of identity and, and, and uh, things like that. And instead, we got this, you know, uh, rocket ship to hell world, and people started to fucking look around themselves and think, what the hell's going on? But the first people to be alienated are the ones who were alienated on, on cultural lines. Cultural lines. And so, and that means racial. That means they were alienated by uh, all of the, honestly, the most necessary uh, and uh, progressive and useful parts of the uh, emerging uh, thesis of like globalized capitalism, which of course must be must be you know challenged and defeated, but things within it are going to have to be absorbed into any future. And like at a basic level, like liberal multiculturalism is going to have to be because without multiculturalism as a base, the working class cannot win. The working class cannot effectively fight global capitalism without the multiculturalism that global capitalism brought into hege hegemonic uh, cultural power. That's how your fucking dialect works. You have to destroy this thing, but you have to utilize structures within it to defeat it. Because the white working class isn't going to do shit any more than the... Uh, the American descendants of slave people who think they're going to get reparations from white America by yelling at them online all day? That's not going to happen either. There is no vision of liberation that is not multicultural and multi-ethnic and multi-racial. Uh, uh, multi because that numbers is, are the only weapons you have if you don't have power. And numbers can only be got through collaboration. Any politics that, that demands separation uh, and uh, stacking privileges on top of each other will be destroyed and broken into those factions that will then be turned against one another by capitalism and then fully, completely dissolved by capitalism and destroyed by capitalism. I saw someone uh, on a show say that you can't get Medicare for all without reparations first. And I have to say, that was jaw-dropping. That was mind-blowing. What is the thinking there? Before you can get to a thing that could benefit pretty much every working person in this country and, and save thousands of... I mean, every working pe person in this country. Everyone. Before you get to that... You have to get something that, by definition, will only help a subsection of Americans and those who aren't help at benefit benefited. Well, they you have to explain to them why it's good that they aren't benefiting from this. You have to get them to recognize their privilege and feel bad for themselves. That a bad bad about themselves. That's in. I don't understand how that could. I don't forget if you're talking about it as a moral proposition. I'm sorry, that's secondary. The question is, how do you get to any of this stuff? And if we're talking about them as like policies that you're trying to push through a political process, then you have to start with the broadest popular base because the left does not exist. The left doesn't exist. It has to be built. One of the big fantas one of the one of the big things that undermines leftist organizing is the fiction that it does. And that fiction is propagated by people, even if they're not trying to sell out for the Democrats, even if they're not trying to be sheep dippers for some uh, you know, con artistry of electoral strategy, uh, they are still devoted to promoting the idea that like there's that they are offering influence to a meaningful group of, uh, a meaningful organizational, uh, like, collection of people, people who could be uh, or, uh, 
mobilized and coordinated in their actions. And that doesn't exist. And so every question needs to be in how to get it to exist. And a question and, and the and an argument saying reparations first, I'm sorry, that is one that because because you see more possibility than there is in the current ordering of things. Just a misapprehension. Oh, that's interesting. Somebody actually brought this up to me in a DM. Uh, someone's asking, what about Latin America? Talking about the coming conflict between China and the United States, what about Latin America? Like, there is a genuine counter-hegemonic, counter-imperial current there in the form of uh, Venezuela and uh, now Evo back in Bolivia. There's There are significant movements that have momentum in Chile. Uh, Ecuador and Peru are restive uh, uh, Brazil is obviously uh, gripped by reaction right now, but there are some green shoots at the grassroots. Uh, Cuba, of course, holding it up down, 90 miles from Florida, like a goddamn, like the goddamn kings and queens that they are. Uh, the problem, though, is is where is the independent source of like capital? You know, where 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 can they? Uh, where, where are they able to... I mean, I'd say AMLO, but, like, I don't know how any Mexican president can... can I, it seems like kind of like being president of Mexico seems like it's almost like being, like, a big city mayor in this country. You can't really do anything that goes against the will of, uh, of the United States, can you? Like, realistically, we have so many uh, strings to tighten. We have so many ways to make uh, your job impossible. I don't know how you'd handle it. Maybe I think the role they might play is if we do get some sort of conflict between China and the United States, they could sort of tag in and, and put their weight behind China and maybe use the fact that they actually have an empowered working class movements across that continent uh, to bring working class people to the table a little bit. Who knows? Just, just spitballing. It would be nice, though, if 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 the, if, uh, if if at our if if the United States in its dark moment is like battling Russia, uh, China, not like an actual war, obviously, but you know, in some sort of some sort of new Cold War situation, and then off the top turnbuckle comes Latin America which we spent the last 200-odd years just vampirically sucking from and, and massacring. It would, be, it would be pretty sweet. Uh, recommend you a Christmas movie? How about Die Hard? No, I'm kidding. Die Hard 2. Which is also a Christmas movie, by the way. Takes place during Christmas. I love that they lampshaded in that movie. They have a, they have a line where uh, John McClane says, Another basement, another elevator? How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? Oh well, let's keep going. That movie is funny because the plot of it is Essentially, if Oliver North took an airport hostage and tried to, like, break Manuel Noriega out of prison. Which is pretty cool for a big-budget movie. It was fun. It's wildly violent. Way more violent than the first one. I mean, it's Rennie Harlan.
Yeah, Die Hard 2 is pretty uh, intense. They show a whole SWAT team. Because remember in the first movie, the SWAT team, uh, Hans goes, just wound them. And they shoot them all in the, like, the legs and stuff. And they show them all going, ow, 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 ow. Like Terminator 2. In uh, Die Hard 2, a whole SWAT team of cops just gets murked by Robert Patrick, actually, speaking of Terminator 2. And a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of like U.S. CIA guys, <laughs> and also in retaliation for an attempt to violate the rules, uh, Oliver North uh, commands unwittingly to the people in the cockpit a British plane full of people, and they even show inside the fucking the plane. They show like all these old British people and little kids running around just to tell you how many. Innocent people are about to get splashed. And then John McClane tries to warn them off of the runway, but they smash into the fucking ground, blow up. Culmini is engulfed in flames. And then after it's burning, McClane goes over and he picks up a fucking uh, teddy, a burned, singed teddy bear out of the rug, ru rubble. Pretty fucking hardcore. The ejector speed escape from the crashed Hercules, that's pretty baller. Uh, he fucking puts John Amos into a fucking uh, jet engine. Oh, best of all, spoiler alert, but the movie's 30 years old. So, this is the best part. So, they got this plane full of mercs, and Oliver North and Manuel Noriega are about to take off for a non-extradition country. John McClane gets on the side of the plane. Uh, the, the turncoat Special ops guy played by John Amos, the dad from Coming to America, comes out and they have a fight on the wing. The guy flies out into the jet engine, gets sucked in. Then John McClane fights the Oliver North guy played by William Sadler. William Sadler kicks his ass and throws him off the plane. And he lands on the runway while they're flying away. Bad guys win. Wrong. John McClane, while he'd been on the, do on the plane wing, had opened up one of the fuel tanks to like try to get him to have less gas and when he's on the runway flat on his ass he sees the big trail of gasoline and he just takes a zippo and lights it and the uh trail of gas zips up into the air into the plane engine uh, the gas tank and blows up the plane in midair he murders like 50 guys like that's just that's just a murder that is, that is illegal in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. There, that is like, no police officer has ever done an act of uh, brutality and like excessive force on that level. Since like the move bombing. And it's great. Everyone's happy. They use the down-burned carcass of the plane as a landing light for all the planes that have to land because they're running out of fuel. Amazing. And you can argue, yeah, sure, he should have done that. Fuck those guys. And I probably agree with you. But it's not the kind of thing heroes in movies generally do. Like, anybody see Black Rain? With, uh, with Michael Douglas? Where he, it's one of those uh, Japan panic movies from the early 90s when we were afraid that the Japanese were going to take over because we were having a nervous breakdown effect about the fact that we were cutting our own balls off in regard to the industrial economy, but because we have no way to actually interrogate our own government's uh, uh, industrial policy because it's beyond politics, we had to put it off on somebody else, and we decided to blame the Japanese for it. Even though the Japanese literally, their entire fucking economy, their post-war industrial economy, was stood up by us on purpose, and then in the 70s, we intentionally changed uh, the rules to facilitate uh, manufacturing in Japan in order to give them a, an industrial base to uh, to stand up from. And uh, that meant that capital was going to flow in that direction. We did that shit. That was a choice. But we decided it was the Japanese fault. But anyway, uh, Michael Douglas goes to Japan, fights this guy who cut his partner's head off with a samurai sword, and he's got him like in an arm lock, and then there's like a broken plank, 
with a big spike coming up. And there's a shot where, like, he looks at it, and he looks at the guy, and you think he's going to kill him, but then it cuts to him bringing him into the uh, police station and booking him. Even though it's Japan, he'll probably get, like, five years. Uh, anyway, John McClane, not even the warm blood of in the middle of a fight, just flick, whoosh, <laughs> I would love to see that in one of these fucking Marvel movies. I shan't be watching anime. No worries about that one, good boy. Shannot, the boy, the lady's not for anime, as Margaret Thatcher said. The lady is not for anime. I haven't actually watched Babylon Berlin yet. I feel like I probably should check that one out at some point. Is it good? Man, RoboCop 3 sucked. PG-13. No Peter Weller. Fuck out of here. Robo RoboCop 2, though, is a little underrated, honestly. Also, very, very uh, prescient. It actually has the city of Detroit declare bankruptcy and sell itself to a corporation, which is essentially what has happened. Detroit literally declared bankruptcy, and I think the Quicken company, Dan Gilbert's company, essentially owns the middle, the center of Detroit. They own all the buildings, and they have a private police force. There's also a great uh, little meta-commentary about the nature of making sequels in that movie. So there's, uh, so in RoboCop 2, you know, RoboCop, uh, he gets blown up in the line of duty and kind of taken offline and he's like he's lost a step he's he sort of turned into like a big pushover and uh ocb uh ocp decides to do a new robocop hey people like the old one they're sick of the old one let's get a new robocop and so there's a very funny sequence where they show uh all of the trial attempts to do a robocop by getting another cop who'd been injured the way that murphy had been and then putting him in a robot suit and First one they show is a guy who kind of looks like an ATM, uh, kind of like Roby the robot, and he, and he just starts shooting. He says, "Stop it! I'll shoot!" And he starts shooting the um, the lab assistants, and then blows his head off. And then another guy comes out, and he's got like the visor on, and he just grabs his helmet and pulls it off and starts screaming. And you see the top of his like bloody skull, and then he dies. Eventually, they realize, oh, like, Murphy was a very specific special case. It's lightning in a bottle, and not everybody is Murphy. You cannot do it to a normal person. And they ended up having to get uh, Kane, the evil nuke dealer and creator, played by the great Tom Noonan, to be RoboCop 2, because they needed a literal psychopath to do it. They needed a, a heartless murderer to do it. I know you might say, uh, but the cops, yes, yes, copaganda, we all know. Move on. And that is... And then he ends up literally opening fire on a room full of reporters, just massacring the shit out of them. Uh, it is definitely a warning about, like, hey, you get what you pay for with a sequel. And, yeah, it also could be said to talk about the nature of policing itself. Like, if, if, if policing is just the uh, heartless... Uh, enforcement of property rights and property rights need more and more brutal enforcement in an era of austerity then the person who does that job has to be uh, a psycho it's also the only sequel I think ever where the title is said by a character in the movie uh, the great Dan Hurley who also played uh, Conal Cochran in Halloween 3 uh, introduces the psycho nuke addict RoboCop 2 at a press conference by saying RoboCop 2. I'm going to rewatch RoboCop 2. That movie is good. But obviously, you don't need a sequel to RoboCop. RoboCop's perfect. Why is every movie PG-13 now? Because only kids go to movies. Young people who still want to go out and do something, go
go to movies. Nobody else does that anymore. At least not in the numbers you need to justify the fucking budgets. And the budgets have to be big because the returns have to be big. I'm not doing a Chapo episode on the Croods. I've never even seen the Croods. Someone reminded me that the Croods actually have, have a Netflix show. So maybe the Croods never went away. But does anybody watch anything on Netflix? It's baffling to me. It seems like such a black box. I mean, obviously people have Netflix and they watch things on Netflix. But what they watch is not what they make in any kind of significant numbers, right? I mean, they're going to lose The Office at the beginning of next year. How much of their viewership is just people watching The Office? And what are they going to replace it with? I do think that kids watch... I mean, they probably watch a lot of kids' shows because... You know, press a button, have your kid get uh, get distracted. But the whole thing seems like kind of a scam. I mean, the fact that they are a publicly traded company and that their numbers are only internally generated and not released to the public, is that not essential? How is that different than mark-to-market accounting that happened under Enron? Maybe there is an independent uh, uh, entity that sees the numbers, but I don't know. Is it true? I have no idea. It's interesting to me. But if there's a correction in the media space, uh, Netflix will probably get eaten by, I would guess, Disney at this point. Going to be Disney plus Hulu, Netflix versus Amazon. And then maybe those guys merge at some point. I mean, eventually they would. It's all internal to Netflix. They're publicly traded. How am I supposed to know what the value, how, how, how accurate that valuation is if I don't know if anyone's watching the shit that they're paying billions of dollars of borrowed money to make? It's kind of crazy to me, but I think that's true of all tech. I mean, the entire tech economy, if you start asking these questions, the whole thing falls apart because it only exists as a way to circulate capital. That's what we, 2008, we recapitalized the economy by giving the richest people all of the money that they could possibly want. And then they said, here, use it. And you know, what are they going to do with it? They could only buy so many gold plated back scratchers. They have to invest it in something. And Silicon Valley exists to give them something to put their money in. That's it. It never has to make money. It never has to generate a profit or become viable. It just has to be a thing to put money into so that they can create an economy around all those, uh, all those corporate campuses and uh, catered lunches and foosball tables and self-driving cars. Uh, and, and, oh, what's this? You've also created a giantly overheated California real estate market out of it, too. All of that generated by this, this, uh, this investment mechanism that is not actually designed to get anybody money back. It's only there to, to circulate money in the economy. And what's insane is, is that we could do that for regular people instead. We could do that 100% for regular people instead. But if we did that, we would lose crucial coercive mechanisms at a time of decli- declining profits and investment oppor- and profitable investment opportunities. And it's so sick because you see, all right, what do we do it one way? What do we give all this money to these motherfuckers? What do they make? They make Silicon Valley. What has Silicon Valley given us? 
What has it done to the physical reality of living in the area that it is geographically located at? And what has it done to our culture? It is poison in every sense. But it is preferable from those in power to give that money to people who will spend it in a way that can be predicted and pounded upon and redounds to reinforce their power than in ways that might undermine their power. And yes, the whole end point of this is that is that as state structures and state capacity declines, as it is and will continue to do, that capacity will be taken up by these concentrations of capital who have used that circulation of money through Silicon Valley to create not profits, but instruments of surveillance, instruments of technological control, drones, Boston Dynamics robots, panopticon, social media and uh, device panopticon that will render resistance to the distribution of resources moot. Six hundred sixty-six viewers, baby. Hail Satan. Oh, I just lost four people. God damn it. It was cringe. I get it. I'm sorry. I apologize for the cringe. And you can't even say it's good. Oh, it's created all these well-paying jobs. Well, it's created a new class of rentier scumbags, but then below that, you've created a bunch of people who are spending tons of their money in fucking rent that's just getting sucked, but sucked up to like existed uh, uh, power powers that be within the area, like the landed, the real estate money that then like buys off that segment of the ruling, the local ruling class, the local bourgeois, uh, to go along with the, the greater project. And so you get just people who think they're happy but are miserable living in guinea pig uh, warrens, sucking soil while well, coating all day, and then people who can no longer afford to live in those places being forced to move farther and further away, spend more and more of their time commuting uh, if they can even find jobs. So I'm going to be signing off for about a week. We'll be coming back a week later, before the New Year's, hopefully, to talk about the last half of the first part of The Republic for Which It Stands. Uh, finish the home chapter. It's going to be good. I uh, hope everybody has a fine holiday in your respective uh, quarantine zones, your tiers, your tier ones, your tier twos. Your tier threes, you, you poor bastards in tier four, uh, tier two, uh, uh, e tier mama tam tier, uh, tier one import. Bye bye.